So welcome to the To Be Named uh, podcast. Uh, I'm Josh Ickes, one of your hosts. With me is... Sean Perry. And what did we watch this week, Sean? We watched Darren Aronofsky's 1999? I believe so. 1999 Pi and Federico Fellini. Is that right, Federico? Yep. Uh, 1967. <laughs> Throwing a guess out there. 63 Damn. was the release date for eight and a half. Eight and a half. Yes. <clears throat> so I had seen Pi about 20 times in my life, and Pi is a special movie for me because it was the one, I think as film buffs, you always have that one where it's like, oh, this is my art house movie this is my like my entry to the art house into the indie genre as a whole and for me mm-hmm. pi was it i used to go to circuit city all the time and just buy dvds i was so into it tuesday release day this would be a big day and i just loved buying dvds and so i i had heard being a high schooler from 2000 to 2005 i heard about requiem for a dream obviously in that time everyone went nuts about it Right. So I got that DVD, and in it was a two-pack with, um, with Pi. And so I watched that movie as, like, as, I think I was, like, 17. And I remember, it was like, the first black-and-white movie I've ever watched. It was definitely the weirdest thing I'd ever watched. But it, it, <laughs> it, it, it but it, it, I just, it knocked me on the floor. I, I was unbelievable. I just, I'd never seen anything like that. I'd grown up on Rambo and Kurt Russell and jurassic park and stuff i had never seen a movie about a mathematician's search for existential validity right so um i loved it and this really kicked off a huge it's like it, it was this and the thing discovering those two movies around that time kind of set me off on this path of my passion for movies which is a huge passion for horror and then also just kind of weird shit off the beaten path stuff like this right so do you have a what's your history with this movie that's i don't think that i saw it until a couple years in but i i bought that same two-pack um probably from best buyer circuit city uh and it was the same kind of thing where i had been seeing a lot of hype for requiem and you know everyone was <laughs> heralding this new voice and of course you know you want to see where that came from and you want to see his first one and uh it's amazing because you really can see a lot of the techniques and the stylistic ticks that aronofsky uses throughout his career you know they were there in this very beginning in pie this little sixty thousand dollar movie well shot for sixty thousand dollars the funding on this one is interesting uh believe he just got funding from every single person he knew including friends and family right yeah um they shot with like a variety of cameras and i don't know entirely how much of that was uh by choice and how much of it was by necessity i know that some of the subway scenes that they shot with a tiny little bolax camera because they were shooting overnight without a permit because um, Aronofsky reported that it would have taken like $15,000 or $20,000 to get a permit 
to shoot all night. And on a budget of, of 60 grand total, you just can't do that. Yeah, I, I remember from the commentary track, he also talks about they tried to spend a lot of money in that grocery store to try to get those guys to mm -hmm. let them film without actually getting a permit. <laughs> And it didn't work, so they, right. they still ended up having to pay. But um, yeah, the, the camera work is really cool. I love the grain of this movie. I think it's it's a huge gateway to enjoy this movie. Is can you? It's kind of similar to the lighthouse. Can you accept a grainy black and white movie like this in this day and age? Um, I I. Um, I think the technology in the movie is also extremely timeless. So it goes with that black and white where the music is drum and bass and modern. But the things that you're seeing are, are really, they're, they're not from any time at all. The computer that he's using is is bizarre. His application for um, his injector for his medicine looks like something out of Star Trek. Like, it's a very strange movie. Right. So as far as the look of it goes, it was shot by... Uh, Maddie Libatique, who this was one of the first things that he really did, um, but he's gone on to do most of the rest of Aronofsky's movies. It, it looks like, as well as shooting stuff like uh, A Star Is Born, uh, Money Monster, Straight Out of Compton, Cowboys and Aliens. Like the guy, if you would watch this movie originally, like I said, you're not sure how much of the look is due to the constraints that were placed on them and how much it was intentional. But I think over time, Lee Boutique has proved himself that it's, you know, probably mostly intentional uh, and definitely working within those constraints. But I think that it, you know, very little was left up to chance. They shot a huge amount of footage for this thing. How many hours were you telling me? Um, it was dozens, dozens of hours of footage, right? Yeah. Which... This, yeah, it's interesting because this movie, I don't, uh, do you want to go beat by beat eventually and kind of go with, like, yeah. okay. So I'll save this for later, but it, there's some scenes where it feels like there's stuff missing, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the characters transition from one location to the next w without kind of letting the audience in on what happened in, in the middle there. Right. Which sort of lends to the um, surreal atmosphere of this movie that I think really works like the further you kind of go down the rabbit hole uh, with your main character, the movie feels fractured. So as Max is getting more and more frantic, the movie kind of really ramps up that way too. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And I love, um, you know, you're talking about Aronofsky establishing things in this movie that we see later. And we can talk about the two major ones for me that pop out are the hip hop montage, as he calls it, mm -hmm. and the snorri cam, which is the the first person or it's it's basically a second person view camera, the one where it's mounted to the actor facing them as uh, they're running around and stuff. Or in this movie, when Max is in the store, they have that camera right. mounted on him. Uh, so the um, the hip-hop montage, God, I thought that was the coolest thing because I was a high school film student. And so for me, like, I just thought that editing on the the pill popping to the locks on the lock, 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 and, and everything. And, right. and then you see it again in Requiem with the 
um, when he takes the hit um, with the needle, you get the blood flowing in, his eye pupil expanding, all of that. I love the flow of that. I love it establishes a routine and a rhythm, which then Aronofsky can kind of mess with the audience by later breaking or delaying one action, which he does in Pi uh, beautifully. I think later in the movie when you feel these disruptions and you feel that rhythm broken. So. That's, uh, I do love those little montages. And I think that, I mean, they've become kind of a, the cultural touchstone for Aronofsky's work. Um, you see it in the Simpsons. They use the same kind of, uh, they pulled it from Requiem, but they even did a, a reference to the eyeball expanding and uh, what was that whole thing. Was that a donut that Homer ate? I don't remember what. I'm not, I don't remember, but I'm sure it's some kind of candy-based confectionery. Uh, but also, it does put me in mind of um, Edgar Wright's editing on something like Shaun of the Dead on those little montages. Uh, you know, I don't know if he pulled any kind of inspiration, but those were definitely a lot more amped up than anything I've seen outside of Aronofsky's work. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, um, I think Hot Fuzz... As I get older, I like Worlds End more. I think Hot Fuzz is maybe his most complete movie as far as like the editing and the, the jokes told through the edit that aren't there on site through the camera. And they're so they're right. in the rhythm of things and how it matches with the music. I haven't seen Baby Driver a second time. I saw it in theaters. I I liked it, but it I, I need to watch it again, honestly. I don't know if I gave it a fair shake, but I know it was edited spectacularly. Um, yes. With with the music cues and everything. That was unbelievable. And so I think Edgar Wright has definitely pushed editing as an art form. And it's also interesting, most people try to hide the editor. And Edgar Wright is and Aronofsky are flipping it on their head where it's, we're going to shove the edit in your face and it's the MTV generation. And you're going to be, you're going to know that we're here cutting this fast and cutting it hard. Right. And from, I've only seen mother one time, but I remember the editing in that as well as being, um, hyper aggressive in certain areas where he really wants to push, uh, you know, the, the storyline and the audience at the same time. I think it's just a technique that, and I don't know where he came up with that aside from, like he says, pulling it from hip hop, from the streets, from things that he saw when he was a kid and trying to get that rhythm. Uh, but to see it used this way is definitely, uh, you know, at the time it was unique, especially. Mother is just a, panic attack waiting to happen <laughs> i that's i i saw it i saw it in the theaters and i was a bit underwhelmed with it because i just we'll talk later about aronofsky and i think especially after watching this movie again and thinking about noah mother in the fountain this guy mm -hmm. he, he he was on a real religious kick a quest for god kind of thing you know right and so i think when i saw mother i hadn't seen any of the trailers but people were saying it's a horror movie it's a horror movie. and then so then i got to mother i was like oh it's a christian allegory oh boy so so i think i kind of <laughs> dismissed it the first time 
but watching it the second time and just kind of putting that aside, it is so stressful. Like Ed Harris and um, I can't Michelle Pfeiffer, they're so good in that movie as just the the most obnoxious, obtrusive, intrusive stress-inducing guests that I could possibly feel and then their kids show up and it just keeps building and building and my anxiety is building and building and that's I I that's just that movie makes me want to run away from it <laughs> that's I remember when I went and saw it um I was with a couple friends and one of them said that it was a great fucking movie that she never wants to see again it's like, that's the effect that it had on her. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. Um, I need to rewatch The Fountain. I don't know if you want to do that sometime, but... Oh, yeah, I love The Fountain. If you want to have a nice big old cry with me as we watch. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing. Like, as a 17-year-old watching Pi, it's so much of it was either over my head or... Maybe I just didn't have the experience to to look at it in a certain way, but now I'm 34 now, and um, it's been fun to grow up with this movie and to have watched it. I think I've watched it every year at least once. I try to watch it on Pi Day, as you and I did. I mean, that's kind of the birth, yes. the birth of this show, is watching Pi together on 314, uh, which was so much fun. Um it's been a real treat to to grow up with this movie and to to have it only valid uh, validate itself more and more the older I get. And um, I actually I got I have one. It was my first tattoo. I only have two tattoos, but I have a spiral on my forearm, and that's okay. that's uh that's definitely heavily inspired by Pi and by my love for this movie and mathematics and the philosophy of the spirals and uh, this movie sends me on rambling rambling deep <laughs> deep conversations well with that do you want to kind of get into the beats of the movie yeah and, please uh, work through it front to back yeah that'd be great okay so i think so... we gotta start right away clint mansell mm -hmm. clint mansell oh, yes. right off the bait right off the bat with the the intro credits the credits are so cool. I love how they're edited. I love the the flashing imagery, but his drum and bass is, for me, pretty iconic or echoic, as our friends might say. Yes. Um, I listened to this soundtrack a lot. After I, I never quite got into drum and bass. I got into it a little bit briefly, but but this soundtrack, I remember like driving in my uh, my car in high school and stuff. And, having this burned on a CD and survival of the fittest max. And we've got the fucking gun. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and Clint Mansell, obviously. So him, Aronofsky and Lubatik all went on to become iconic creators and iconic artists right. in their own fields. And unfortunately, the only one that didn't is Sean Golette, apparently. Which I has we can maybe talk about that, but I don't I don't know what happened with that guy. He never quite took off for him. No, which is sad because uh, his character Max in this movie is like it's one of those things where it is hard to separate the actor from uh, the character in this case because 
it is so lived in. It's such a, it feels real performance. Yeah. Yeah. Watching him in Requiem for a Dream, which is the only other role I can really think of off the top of my head. He has a small one. He goes on a dinner date with, um, uh, what's her face? Jennifer Connelly. And she mm-hmm. has the, she has the imagined dream of stabbing him in the hand with a fork. At, yes. at the, he looked, he just looked different. Cause I was just like, Oh, that's Max. You know, I, I couldn't see him as, as the actor or as a character is still just Max sitting at that table. I was like Max wouldn't be on a dinner date with someone. No, he's far too paranoid for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have the, if you want to go, do you have the plot beats in front of you? Cause I do not. Okay. So, uh, we open with Max and, uh, who we find out is a number theorist. We don't really know how he makes his living, uh, cause he doesn't seem to actually have a job per se, um, besides obsessing over these numbers. And it's kind of laid out to us in the beginning that a few character things. First of all, he suffers from these headaches, uh, which are symbolized in the movie through, uh, his twitching thumb. It's kind of the precursor, uh, which is a, a detail that Aronofsky pulled from medical textbooks about how when people get migraines or cluster headaches, that's a lot of times they'll have like a physical precursor to it. So it's an actual, like he tried to make this as grounded as it can be for what is ultimately a science fiction movie told on this little tiny budget. Um, you also get a real nice and, music cue from Mansell when they're coming mm-hmm. on. You just get that low droning and then there's just this kind of sound and then it builds to that that subway breaks screeching sometimes. Um, right. Beautiful sound design. I, I don't get migraine. I, I guess I get kind of migraines, but I, I'll get a blind spot in my eye every once in a while mm-hmm. and then I know okay, 30 minutes from now, that's going to go away, and then I'm going to have probably a minor headache. Right. So. That's, I used to get them real bad when I was uh, a teenager, I guess, which is like the onset of a lot of these things for people um, is during adolescence. Um, And I would have the same thing where I would get a blind spot and I would see things swimming within the blind spot uh, to the point where I thought I was like seeing ghosts for a while. Wow. Yeah. It, it wow. was definitely freakish. And it was one of those things that uh, when I see it kind of portrayed in a movie like this, and I'm like, no, that was fairly close to the experience that I had where I didn't totally white out and wake up in weird rooms, but it was pretty intense. <laughs> I feel I feel terrible for anybody who has any kind of migraine or cluster headache or anything. It's, it's awful. I remember as a kid, my mom would have to inject herself in the night with um whatever migraine injections sometimes they would get so bad she would literally have to shoot up to um just to try to get back to sleep i can't remember what that drug was i was back in the 90s i think they i think it's better now but uh yeah it's it's terrible and it's wonderfully represented in this movie through the editing and the acting and the sound design and we're very quickly introduced to not only Max, but his only real touchstones in life are 
uh, Jenna, who's this little girl who lives in the same building as Max. She's adorable. She's fascinated. Yes. She's fascinated by the fact that Max can do these complex math problems in his head. And she kind of carries her on this calculator and challenge, challenges him to uh, solve a problem before she can. I, which is very I love, sweet. Do you remember getting your first calculator as a kid? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's the best. And typing boobs <laughs> and hello and hell. <laughs> and <laughs> so I love that. It uh, just rings so true to me. I'm just a kid walking around asking people to do math questions. You know, it's, it's so great. And it's something I think it's like totally lost now because like my kids grew up, you know, with cell phones and everything. My my 14 year old daughter, my 15 year old daughter, sorry, is fascinated by older technology Um and she wants to have a VCR in her room and stuff like that. But to have like a physical calculator and you could cover up the little solar panels and it would blink out and then come back when you let your finger yeah. off. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I loved covering it up and then <laughs> I would take everything apart at school. That was like, I would just out of boredom. I, I would take every single pen I owned apart to understand how the mechanical mm -hmm. pen worked or of course that that then went to calculators where taking them apart down to like the circuitry and, and just looking having no idea what i was looking at but trying to figure it out at my desk there. <laughs> acting like you knew what was going on with them well, as long as i was being quiet i don't think the teachers mind it yeah which it's funny because that's the same kind of like thought process or ingenuity that makes parts of this movie accessible. Like the, uh, we, we see the inside of Max's apartment, which is entirely taken over by this supercomputer, presumably that he has built himself. And like you were talking about earlier, it's got this mixture of old and new technologies that are all kind of crammed together. And he's got these great racks of wires and, and chips that are all, uh, you know, soldered together uh, that take up his whole apartment. I feel like H.R. Giger would be very comfortable in that room because it's very biomechanical. Yes. It looks like that computer, it like started at Max's desk and then every time he has a headache or something, it slowly has built itself and expanded around him. And it's it, it looks like it's consuming him and he's just, mm -hmm. he's just a part of this machine. It's unbelievable set design and it's so cool that they just got just a bunch of random scrap electronics and threw it all together but with the film grain you're they're able to hide so many of the details and create right. this haunting looking thing with these stark black shadows and these bright whites and the weird old school um flicker you know the monitors flicker with the frame rate of the camera stuff like that everything is right. so cool in this set it's I'm always interested in this portion as well because it's there's a combination of a real apartment building for the outside, his interactions with um, Jenna and Debbie, who lives next door to him and talks to him sometimes, um, and this inside room, which was built on a uh, in a warehouse somewhere. They actually built that on a stage, and apparently there was only really two walls of it and they keep finding ways in this like cramped little space to find new angles and new ways to let you see what max is doing and what's happening to him um, and it's just one of those things where 
you know, I've shot like five or six movies now as cinematographer. And you're always looking for a way to frame the action, a way to frame something. And you kind of fall back on the same three or four uh, two shot over the shoulder, over the shoulder, very kind of standard uh, setups that people do, you know, repeatedly. And in this movie, it's never standard. It's always pushing it forward and it's always like related to the action that's happening, uh, which is probably part of the reason they have so much footage is maybe finding some of those setups and really what would be perfect about it. That's interesting. This, this movie does not fall into, as I'm thinking about how that room is shot, they shot it almost every way possible, didn't they? Except for mm -hmm. basically like upside down is I think the only one they didn't do. But you got ones right. where the camera's way up in the back corner behind equipment looking down on him. You got extreme close-ups of Max. You got extreme close-ups of the keyboard. You have that part which you say there's two walls. That amazes me because there's that shot where they're literally circling. Max is circling the room for like 15 seconds <laughs> as the camera just spins on an axis on a single point. And I, I love that shot. I, I think it's... Um, you know, people always talk about the shot of the camera revolving around the actor being very mm -hmm. overused and cliche. But I don't feel often you get that shot of the character spinning around the camera where the camera has to just spin across the entire room as the, the character just paces in a circle. Right. And uh, on the commentary, they talk about the fact that Maddie Libatique had to stand there physically and spin <laughs> around. And so they wrapped the cables around him in the opposite direction so that he wouldn't trip as he was doing that spin move. So it was all pretty precisely thought out, which is amazing because it feels so spontaneous. It feels like in the moment they caught this thing that was happening. Yeah, it's it's so cool. And I I geek out on little tiny film details like that. So the fact that they they pre-wound him so that way he could unwind himself as the cameraman. That's awesome. So we're introduced also to uh, Saul Robeson, who was Max's uh, math tutor or uh, a former teacher of his, apparently, uh, as played by Mark Margolis, who is, uh, everyone knows him now from uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Hector Salamanca. Yes. Uh, and amazingly, the man looks the exact same age in this movie as he does in Breaking Bad. What? What's going on with Mark Margolis? <laughs> he has he has Leslie Nielsen syndrome or so. No, but even Leslie Nielsen aged. Mark Margolis, how old was, was he like 50 when this movie shot? I don't know how old he was. That blew my mind because... Um, even three years ago when Mark was on, um, or two, I guess he's still around Better Call Saul. He <laughs> looks the exact same. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's like he early on instantly aged up to a certain point. Benjamin buttoned at a certain point <laughs> and just kind of held there. He is wonderful. He's the heart and soul of this movie. He's like he's my attachment point now at this point because mm -hmm. I used to really like Max as a teenager, thinking that like oh man he's they people don't get it he's on this quest and everything but now I'm I, I'm much more of a Saul guy 
where I see Mark Margolis yeah. and he embodies much more of a healthy life and of positivity and happiness and don't think too much, go with the flow, uh, learn from my mistakes. I, I think his right. performance is beautiful. I, he and Sean Gallette have such a great back and forth too. And I think once again, a lot of the, the lifting is done by the setting that Aronofsky puts them in, which was, um, it was a friend of his parents' apartment, um, who he said were both, um, liberal professors. And he just remembers going to their apartment, uh, when he was younger and there'd just be these stacks of books everywhere and kind of notes taped up all over the place. Um, and they just shot the apartment as is, uh, they used both kind of their living area and their kitchen, uh, later in the movie for Saul's apartment. Um, and it really does. It looks just as much as Max's apartment is this digital kind of creation of all of these different kinds of technology. Uh, Saul's apartment is this, you see these books and heavy papers and, um, very tactile kind of, you know, lived in feel. That's interesting. I had not, I hadn't really given Saul's apartment much thought, but that's so true that Saul still has time to have artwork and books and literature and things like that. Mm -hmm. And Max is surrounded by his soul consumption, which is the quest for this. Now he 216 string, uh, digit of numbers, but, uh, that's a wonderful point. Also, I, I, I think it's so cool that they, they're playing Go and that they're not playing... Mm -hmm. ch chess would have such a different feel because I feel chess is too literal of a game. I think the chess right. is too direct, whereas Go, I don't really understand the rules of it, but Max is able to describe it... Or, or not Max, Saul is able to describe the game so beautifully... And it's so open and open universally to all these options and choices. Um, so much about yeah. Saul works for this movie as a counterpoint and as a softening point and as a way to have the audience both understand and then question Max's choices. It definitely, he's someone who has been through what Max is going through or been close to where Max is in his life. You can tell that he's, um, you don't get to this kind of level and stature that Saul has had, um, of being a professor and being someone's mentor, this genius's mentor without having gone close to this yourself. But it looks like he's come up the other side with sort of the, the synthesis of living totally in his head and being able to be part of the physical world. Whereas Max, you know, except for Saul, he kind of shuns the other people around him. Even he gives them very little interaction. He doesn't seem to be in his body ever. He's only exists in his own mind. That's where everything is for Max is up in his brain and in Euclid, his, his computer that he builds. And it's like, it's an extension of himself to the point where the physical realm doesn't really matter at all. He doesn't take care of himself. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, to, to bring up on this point, Max also has ants in his apartment and we're sort of shown yes. early on the ants are climbing around on the mainframe and on the stock ticker and stuff. And I think what you just said about 
Max being solely driven by this thing is, uh, I know the answer very interpretational open. I just look at them as basically, um, they're builders without quite a sense of what purpose they're doing, but they're driven to do it is what ants do, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they know they have a mission and they, they know what they need to do without ever really understanding where they exist as a whole. And so I, I think Max is very similar where he, he's extremely driven, but he, he thinks of himself as important and as significant. And Max doesn't quite realize that he, he's just an ant in this, just like all of the rest of us when it comes to like understanding universal meaning and, and to understand God. He, he truly believes right. himself above everyone else. And I think the answer there is a reminder um, just how small he is and how small we are. And I think, I don't know if you remember from the commentary, that's close to the, uh, Aronofsky tells an anecdote about uh, where the ants came from for him. Uh, and it was, he was on this backpacking journey down through um, different uh, Mayan ruins and stuff and they went and they found this old ruin, him and some of his friends and in the middle of this, he sees this gigantic colony of ants who are still building their colony inside of these ancient human ruins and kind of the metaphor was pretty spot on for what, what you just said uh, that they didn't actually have any awareness of the outside world that had been built and crumbled around them, they were just building their own colony uh, inside it and they didn't really care about humanity at all they just continued with what they were supposed to be doing i love that i do not remember that so yeah <laughs> i'm glad aronofsky agrees with me <laughs> so uh somewhere in here max is trying to make stock predictions with his computer and kind of with this um uh equation that he's trying to work out for how pi fits into the world and the fact that everything uh, stems from these patterns, everything in nature stems from the same patterns as everything in the rest of your, in the rest of his life. So uh, that's where the 216 digit number comes from is him trying to find a stock prediction. And it looks like it's wildly off base, but this number becomes important uh, to a, you know, several different people who wind up pursuing Max throughout the rest of the movie. Which, yeah, that brings us to Lenny. Lenny, yes. the Hasidic Jewish guy who is also a numerologist. So Lenny, Lenny approaches Max in the, in the coffee shop. And I love that Max is drawing with charcoal pencil on note on newspaper. For some reason, mm -hmm. I just, I loved that choice as a kid. Uh, I just thought that was so cool. But I think Lenny's completely full of shit when he says, uh, when he pretends he doesn't know who Max is. I think yes. he was very clearly scouting Max. Um, so I, but I love the scene where Lenny, Lenny basically, uh, is part of a Jewish group that is translating the Torah into numerology, basically, and does a really cool mathematical demonstration which i believe is accurate showing that each each letter in the torah or in uh in hebrew represents a number 
and then say the number for mother plus father equals child, and those numbers add up to be the same thing. It's a really cool little sequence, and I love stuff like this in movies when I feel like I'm getting taught something. Yeah, it's... Uh, they did have um, uh, Jewish uh, Kabbalistic advisors on the movie, um, and Aronofsky, growing up Jewish, apparently, like, delved into a lot of uh, his own personal kind of background and the mysticism around things that he knew, but he wanted to pull more of that stuff to the forefront. And that's where um, stuff like that equation comes from. Uh, and the definite orthodox um, Jewish things that we, that we see later, the, um, the symbols and uh, techniques that they, that they have. Uh, and Lenny tries to hook Max in uh, with this basically by saying that, you know, we're working on the same problem. You are calling it um, pi, and you're looking for these stock tips, but it's really the name of God. And with that, we could unlock everything. Yes, and that kind of... And then a, we have three parties, basically, and they're each after it for a different reason. We have the Jewish people mm -hmm. who believe that the number is the number of the name of God and will bring about the new messianic era. We have the woman who represents corporate America, and she just wants it for the stock numbers. And then we have Max, who believes it to be... I, I, I don't... What do you think Max thinks this number is? If it's, Do you think he believes it's God? I don't really see Max as a believer. No, he doesn't seem to be observant in any way. Um, and... It, it seems like you were saying before, like he views himself and his path as above and outside of what everyone else is doing. So he thinks it's more important than the stock market. He thinks it's more important than this search for God. He thinks that it will unlock the universe itself um, kind of with logic and without any sort of uh, mysticism involved with it. I love it. I think he looks at it as, Sorry, go ahead. I, I love I love his arrogance and his petulance. He's yeah. he's so childish and so entitled. And I love his scenes with Saul of Saul trying to talk him off this edge and to talk him down from truly becoming Icarus. Um, mm -hmm. And that I, I embarrassingly I don't think I picked up or maybe I didn't and I just don't remember on the whole like. Icarus flying too close to the sun thing. Saul literally tells him he's Icarus flying too close to the sun, and I, I right. swear it wasn't till like my fourth viewing that I picked up on that. <laughs> but but it's very it's very Greek mythological uh, in, in that regard of that that story of and you can see it through the editing through the sound. The closer and closer Max gets to this, the the deeper the penalty is going to be the stronger his headaches get, the more intense things get, mm -hmm. the more broken his relationships with people get. He's, he's going to sacrifice everything for this vanity. And he becomes more entwined with, the, with Euclid and his computer and the number itself. Um, Marcy, who represents the, the stock market side of things, brings him this classified computer chip to replace the one that the ants were crawling all over uh, and had been developing some sort of organic matter in his, in his computer. 
So when he uses the chip, uh, he starts analyzing the, the Torah, the patterns that Lenny had pointed out to him. And once again, the same 216-digit number pops up on the screen, and Max starts writing it down, and he's looking back and forth. And the way that it's told with the editing, they don't do any of the like the lifting for you. They just show you that he starts understanding the number in his own head without having to look back at the screen, that he starts copying it down just from memory. And so there's some way that this is like infused into him, into his brain, into, into his body, but it does intensify his headaches. He becomes more and more paranoid. Um, his head, there's a, a vein that you really see start bulging further and further out from his head. So let's talk about his vein on his head. The, o- <laughs> the only way I can read it basically is it's, it's the physical manifestation of what you said, this infusion that he has. It's not natural. It's not normal. Whatever, whatever message he's been given, it's, it's corrupting him, basically. And it's, physically mani- it's a physical manifestation of that corruption is, is how I look at it. He, he's, it he, he brings- can't hold it. It's too powerful for him to hold it, and it's going to break him. Right. It brings to mind... <laughs> The fact that later um, Aronofsky uh, actually licensed the movie um, Perfect Blue, the anime film, um, because he was going to use uh, several images from it. And if you look at Requiem for a Dream, there are shot for shot comparisons that he, that Aronofsky pulled from um, anime to actually populate his own film with. And something like this bulging vein seems to come from you know, that sort of, you can see it a lot in anime or in manga um, type uh, media where somebody will, will start, you know, physically manifesting things like that. Um, Have you seen uh, Tetsuo? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's all right. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, this is all clicking now. Tetsuo yeah. is it. That's the whole movie is just the, the head vein part of it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Tetsuo, so, Tetsuo makes me... There's certain movies that make me feel physically uncomfortable. And I don't know if it's like sick to my <laughs> stomach or something. And that's one of them. Yes. And it's not because it's gross or anything. It's just something about the aesthetic and the edit and then the stop motion and everything that I just... I, it, it makes me feel gross just to like think about it. Yeah, it makes me feel itchy, like under my skin itchy. Uh-huh. Like if my bones are hurting or something, you're like, no, this <laughs> this hits me at a core level. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, I have a much easier time watching Cronenberg stuff than I would Tetsuo again. Yeah, I can see that. So uh, as his headaches intensify, Max uh, has a falling out with Saul. Saul tells him that he needs to quit. He's lost sight of what's really important. Um, and what do you think as far as his paranoia versus the people who are actually after him kind of how, what do you look at as the balance of that? Because it's one of those things of you're not paranoid if they're actually after you. And it really does seem to be that, um, Marcy from the stock market is after him and has these thugs who are chasing him. Uh, and he has to be rescued by the Hasidic Jews. 
uh, on the other hand, and it seems that everyone does want what's in his head. Yeah, uh, he's absolutely being followed by multiple parties because the fact that he's saved by the Hasidic Jews just shows that they were out looking for him too, or they were following mm-hmm. him as well. Um, and you mentioned uh, the shot or the sequence of the the film student or whatever, the student in the subway taking mm-hmm. his photo. Um, I think that was just showing how on edge Max was, that that probably was just some kid shooting, um, just shooting stock New York City stuff, and Max lost his mind on right. it. Speaking of losing their mind on the subway, <laughs> what... <laughs> Uh, this is one I still don't know. I, I, I've I've got about 90% of this movie. I feel I've I've worked um I've worked a pretty like solid concrete theory as far as what I think is going on. The brain stuff in this movie, I don't know what's mm-hmm. going on with that. What do you what do you see there? That's so I find it fascinating. So yeah, so it's, just so there's this part where there, it, there's a human brain, I believe it's a real brain, that in the subway, yeah. and Max approaches it with a ballpoint pen and starts poking it, and then every time he <laughs> pokes it, his own headache goes crazy. And it's something, practically, that's one of those things that I was always wondering, how do they get away with that? Because it looks like they're in this abandoned subway station, and the, the brain is sitting there and there's a trail of blood across the subway platform and this whole thing that like leads him to it. Uh, and the trick with how they got away with it is they covered up the brain with newspaper and people would walk past Well, <laughs> and just kind of keep shooting. There's blood in a brain. Insane. There's a, there's a blood trail and brain on the New York city subway. Sounds like Wednesday to <laughs> me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think it's sort of letting us into him poking and prodding within himself to try to find where the truth of uh, what this number is and what's really going on. Um, so do you think he's, this is in his head as in similarly when he has his headache episodes in his bathroom where he goes to a different realm, a different, you think, you think this is all just, in his own head, basically. Yes, same with, I, the, I same with that... the singing guy on the subway. I think that that relates to this this feeling of surreal, dreamlike state to the whole subway yeah. sequence. In in the beginning, the headaches and the the white void is kept to within his own domain, within his own apartment. And as he gets closer and closer with this number, it infuses the rest of his life and uh, there's a series of shots of looking at uh, the trees outside that are actually shot at different frame rates and it's one of those things it's supposed to um, put you in the mindset of how he is seeing it each time as uh, he is slowed down they overcranked the camera so he's a little bit slowed down and everything around him is sped up and has that dreamlike quality and they push that and push that uh, until you get to this total like reality breaking thing where he's playing with a human brain, which, you know, despite the fact that the subway cops let it happen probably would get you stopped in real life. I would hope. I would hope. <laughs> uh, it's, it's wild though. It, it, 
It was that a real brain though? I I seem to recall them saying that in the commentary. I might have made that up though. Um, I didn't actually catch if he says it's a real brain or like what kind of brain it is. Um, he does talk about the fact that they had a couple of different ones, um, and in the scene coming up, the brain had been sitting around for a couple of days and was a little bit rotten. Um, Lovely. And w- yeah, when Max actually has to destroy the brain. Um, that was the brain that they used, and he said the set smelled like that for the rest of the time, oh. which is horrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you wonder uh, if it wouldn't be better to use uh, a, a prop, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, organ meat is one of the cheapest things. They, they used it in Night of the Living Dead, and uh, look what a classic it became. <laughs> But, uh, so, Max is, is pursued by uh, the, the stock market people. He's pursued by the, the Jews, and he's given kind of a little bit more insight into each, one, each side of this uh, equation, and he wants nothing to do with any of them. He, he runs from the Jews to visit Saul once again, only to find out that he's died. Uh, and he died after he and Max have a huge fight, mm-hmm. which is uh, especially tragic, I think, when when it's left like that, and left on such a bad place. But you also see that Saul had gotten out the old papers, the old, right. the old number papers. And so it's, it's kind of implied that potentially Max dragged him back into this. And it might have it might have been the thing that killed him because they say Mac, you know, he says that it caused his stroke um, earlier in the movie. Right. So I don't know Saul. We were talking about Saul having gained a lot of perspective, but it's it seemed like it was forced on him physically by having a stroke. It never we're never quite sure if Saul has chosen to abandon his pursuit or if he just was unable to. Right, and if he kind of burned out rather than made the decision to step away from it. Yeah. But the end of Mark Margolis in this movie, unfortunately, but again, he's, yeah. he's amazing. He's so good. He, he steals every scene that he's in, in this movie. And he's got just like this look in this presence of, um, that invite you to impose a story and a history on him already with just seeing him, on the screen. I mean, they use it in the same way in Breaking Bad, where when he's first introduced, you don't really know anything about his backstory, and they kind of explore it through, through the different series, but you know that this guy has a story, just because of the, the lines on his face and these crazy eyebrows and his hair. Like, he always looks slightly unkempt, and like, he's just been, you know, he's not running from anything, because he's an 82-year-old man, but he looks like he's been running from something his whole life. Like there's shit going on in this guy's life and uh, it's right there on his face. It's amazing. You could film Mark Margolis doing anything and it would be captivating. He's just, I think he's just one of those people, but you're absolutely right. One thing that I've caught on to this time was uh, he has a tattoo on one of his fingers. You Mm -hmm. see when he's playing go and you know, his age being a Jewish man, um, very curious if you know potential holocaust 
thing with tattoos on his arm and stuff, you know? It, there's a lot of right. backstory that's not gone into there. Um, but he's it's just wonderful, and he's he's kind of the mentor that I, I look for nowadays. You know, 34 right. years old, you... Uh, working, uh, I've worked at multiple bakeries, and I've I've always been disappointed when I'm let down by my mentor. Where I I, I feel like I finally found the one that this is the one that's going to be level-headed and give me the advice I need and stuff. And then they all turn out to be a little bit too much Max and not enough Saul. <laughs> it's hard to find that correct synthesis in the world. It is. Um, also, Max has shaved his head. And he looks like a lunatic now. <laughs> Sean Gallette with a yes. sh- Sean Gallette looks so intense with a shaved head. The <laughs> it really ramps this the ending of this movie up to another level. And that's Aronofsky talks about that, like the switch that was flipped when they did that when they when they shaved his head, um, and he came, and he came back to set, and how intense he seemed instantly. I- I could see I could see Sean Gallette being a bit of a method guy. Yeah. A bit of a guy that probably isn't going to joke around with you on set. So, uh once he finds the the paper with the number on it in Saul's uh apartment, Max goes back to his place and he has another one of his headaches. And we this is where you get the same hip hop montage that we've been treated to multiple times throughout the movie except for he doesn't take his painkillers. He doesn't take the whatever the medicine is that he's supposed to for this. He he eschews it this time. And in kind of his his blind pain that he's in, he destroys part of his computer. Uh, which I think, like, the destroying of, of Euclid and what he does next, <laughs> it's basically the same thing. It's like this emblematic that he is so entwined with this... Um, this computer, this home that he's built himself, he lives within the computer uh, and destroying it, I think is like destroying a part of himself. Yeah. And he has to destroy both the mechanical and the biological. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, this is where it gets really intense with the sound design and the editing. And they add some like camera vibration and stuff. And then I love when he's, when he's, uh, smacks the mirror breaks the mirror mm-hmm. and um and then he's headbutting the mirror uh you can tell sean galette was really really intense during during this part yeah because he was going for it so uh there's no way around it at, at this point it's kind of cross cut in between him uh freaking out destroying the mirror we see the brain uh, once again, it shows up in the sink of his apartment and he's he punches it <laughs> and, and beats it with this drill. Uh, making he destroys the computer, making a really weird noise. Yes, I just <laughs> I had to bring it up when he's smashing that brain in that sink. It's... It's it's great, but it's just it's it's off it's out there, man. It's it's wild. And I think it's one of those things where uh if you are not with the movie, there are certain things like the the mystic microchip um 
that he's given oh, the, is just this little microchip. The mean mecha. And the mean mecha. Yes, it hasn't even been declassified uh, yet. Right, and you would <laughs> see that. Just, and if you're not into the movie, you'd be like, "What the fuck?" It's like, a little. This it's a little black cube with four prongs coming yeah. out of it. It's it's hilarious, but. I love it because this movie was like, well, we don't have the budget to create a bunch of stuff. So what if we just create this fictional technological world and ask the viewers to buy into it? Yes, exactly. And it works so well. And so at this point, Max burns the paper with, with the number on it, kind of destroying the record of, of the 216-digit name of God. Um, and then improvises uh and i don't know how to pronounce the word trepanning trepanning oh yeah Uh, yeah i don't know drilling out part of his own brain with this tool that he's used on euclid throughout the film this this drill he now uses it and turns it on his own brain and i love that you pointed that out i i swear i have not noticed that that's the same drill that he uses to when he installs the new chip and he takes when he takes that glass panel off also you notice that there's like a sound effect like it's it's been vacuum sealed and you hear like a yes. <laughs> it's it's i love it i love it but that's awesome that that's the same drill he was operating on in fixing his computer he's now going to fix himself with that's awesome and he what do you think is the point of this of this ending because we're down to the last scene where he comes to uh in he's been through his white void well he's actually exists in it that void i just that void is absolutely beautiful the Mm -hmm. the music in it is serene and he's you see him standing there whispering the numbers which i think is the name of god and you can i think basically for me it's he stood on the threshold of that door and but he also but in the end he decided to turn away from it and so but that moment i do think he was standing before god and Mm -hmm. whether it's in his own mind or however you want to put it i do i do believe in the validity of it and of what the jewish people were saying and um right. it's such a cool moment and the fact that he dissolves and fades into the white and we haven't seen we haven't seen that much use of this white and typically max is very starkly contrasted against it and so now we see him fade into the white kind of releasing himself you know, letting himself mm-hmm. go, letting himself become more one with the universe and with the flow of the cosmos. Um, I love it. I, I love that moment. And it is um, this moment and, and the, the one following, it's the best that Max looks in the whole movie because he looks like someone who's been beaten up and is kind of greasy um, and is has been hounded by something through this whole film and uh, from a visual perspective the whites are always blown out on the highlight of his face and the dark parts are always clipped so it's like you lose all this detail and finally when you see him in the white void you actually see 
kind of this really nice rendering of his whole face. Um, and it's, I don't know if they use a different uh, film stock or a different camera uh, throughout this portion of it, but it definitely has a different feel and it's got this like dreamlike feel to it. That, yeah, that's a really good point. It's, it's not nearly as starkly contrasted because his face, yeah. it does look much more human and it's not like you're not yes. losing things to the void of just the grain blackness. Um, so now he's he's sitting on the basketball court with Jenna, correct? Mm-hmm. So yes. he has a beanie on, which I, I really like the beanie because it's kind of that Inception Nolan ending of uh, what really happened here. Did he really drill right. into his head and he has a bandage underneath that beanie? Or I, I, I interpret a lot of this movie as more metaphorical than mm-hmm. literally drilling into his head. I don't think he did that, but I think he erased that part of his brain one way or another. Right. Whether he lobotomized himself or not, it's, uh, he's stepping away from that. So, and now this beautiful ending Jenna hands him a leaf and says, pretty, huh? And you just see this kind of, this smile creep up on his face, and she asks him to do a math trick. And she asks him, what's this number? And he says, I don't know. What is it? And he has this smile that just tells you he, he's free of it. You know, whatever whatever price that he paid to get rid of this thing, he's in a better place now. And specifically, uh, one of the questions she asks him is 748 divided by 238, which comes out to pi. It's approximately pi. <laughs> and he doesn't know it anymore. Yeah. This thing that has dogged him, he it's not in his brain anymore. And it's beautiful. I, I love it. And that it's just, it's one of those endings that just wraps something up so beautifully and puts such a nice bow on the whole package that... It's a really nice feeling to walk away from every time at the end of this movie. And so I think it's one reason that I've watched this movie so many times is that in the end, it's it's not going to punish you as the audience or make you feel like shit. It, it actually does end on a, a pretty optimistic note as far as sometimes it's best to let go of things. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of unique in Aronofsky's um, filmography for, for being that optimistic. I mean, I think uh, message-wise, The Fountain gets close and, um, you know, tends towards the, the positive. But he is a filmmaker, someone who likes to kind of leave you sitting in the uncertainty of uh, what you just watched. Oh, yeah. Black Swan and The Wrestler, especially, just th- mm-hmm. they, those have those final notes of like, wow, that was beautiful and open but i'm pretty sure that had a dark ending also i should watch black swan again i've only seen that one once uh i think i've only seen it once as well which is sad like it's a, a beautiful movie yeah so um that's pie that was awesome that was really that was, that was fantastic. That was really fun. <laughs> I, I've wanted to deep dive pie for a long time. I have one friend who gets it, and he's my but he's the only friend who I've really actively maintained from high school, and uh, mm-hmm. so he, we, we he watches 
all sorts of weird shit like me, and so we still on uh, on Pi Day, one of us will inevitably text the other, "Happy birthday, Euclid." Yeah, nice. Uh, so. That's fantastic. All right, so uh, next we watched Eight and a Half by Fellini. Um, and I believe that's Fellini who stars in this, right? I wasn't positive. Uh, Fellini is the director. Um, the stars Marcello Mastro. Okay. Mas- I'm, I'm I, I wasn't name. sure if Fellini was uh, portraying himself or if he had an actor. Okay, good to know. No, which is definitely... Um, I mean, the the main character, uh, Guido Anselmi, is the the character's name, is definitely based on Fellini. I don't know if you looked at, into the background of this one at all, but uh, it's a very autobiographical film. It felt like it. Um, I didn't look in. I didn't look into the background of it, but from the gist of it, I got I got a pretty good view of I think what Fellini's life was like at this point. It, it's pretty clear how mm-hmm. he feels about th- things and people. <laughs> That's, uh, it took me a couple times of watching this to, and, and I feel like there's still things culturally that we probably don't get just because we're so removed in, in time and space from when this movie came out. Um, like I said, it was 1963, uh, you know, for an Italian creative and kind of what he went through. Uh, growing up and creating his his films at the time, uh, I'm sure there's stuff culturally that's that's lost. You know, you know what's what's not lost to time, his his choice what's of that? sunglasses and glasses in oh. general. Oh my god, it's amazing! Yes. I could never pull off anything he's wearing. I don't wear glasses, but the style in this movie mm-hmm. is unbelievable. It makes me realize that I dress like absolute shit. When I see when I see everyone in this, and they all look stunning, everyone, the costumes, the hats, the glasses, it's all impeccable. Mm-hmm. And I felt so bad realizing, because he, he mentions at one point that he's 43 years old, which is only two years older than me, and but he looks like an adult, and I still dress like a teenager, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. Well, it's also fun. <sighs> As a kid, I realized I could never age anyone. I guess it's just like after 35, everyone's just old mm-hmm. when I was a kid. But now watching this, I'm like, oh, shit, am, is, am I going to look that in nine years? Or, I, I hope so. But at the same time, that's a lot of right. white going on. I, I don't know. It's like, I, it's so hard <laughs> to age some people. I Before he said 43, I honestly would have put that guy in his mid-50s. Mm-hmm. And as I said, that guy is uh, our lead, Guido Anselmi. Uh, also, they call him, they just call him the director over and over again in this film because he's someone who is known by what he does. That's definitely the, the, been the, the most important thing in his life, seemingly. And they don't seem to ever mention any specifics of his previous works. We just know he's the it director. Of, of Italy of the time right. and that that's basically all the movie informs us of um, I mean I, if, to start I'd say let's just talk again about the black and white 
and what it does mm-hmm. because i think for this movie it it it's unbelievably beautiful the way this movie shot and the lighting there's things that just wouldn't look nearly the same if you had a full color palette there's tricks and stuff that 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 are able to be accomplished through black and white and fellini nails it i I, it's really really beautifully composited and the character movement there's a lot of sequences that feel so dreamlike and combined with the 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 cinematography it's unbelievable it's so cool and i don't think this movie in color would have nearly the same impact no, I totally agree with you. I think um, cinematography is by Gianni Di Venanzo, uh, and everybody's skin looks just flawless and like creamy and beautiful. And you know, you're kind of supposed to see things through um, Guido's point of view, and he definitely has this uh, tendency to fall in love with the world around him repeatedly through, throughout the film with like the physical world. Um, and it's interesting because we actually only visit a few set pieces. There's the fountain. There's this kind of outdoor diner that they go to a few times. Um, there's the beach and there's the hotel and the set that they're building for the film within the film. Uh, and you, we see them, and it's pretty cool, like, when you actually get to see things a couple different times through his perspective, um, because of the surreal nature of this and kind of the point of view that we're taking on, we only focus on what Guido is focused on. We don't see these huge um, master shots all the time unless that's what he wants to show us, is kind of this, the beauty and the symmetry of, of a larger frame. There's so many of these close-ups of people that just look uh, amazing. Yeah, and similarly, <clears throat> we see the movie through Guido's eyes, but we also see it through his mind, because we're often seemingly just daydreaming with him, or he's he's composing mm-hmm. a film in his own mind as he's just sitting there at a place. And I think at one point you see him kind of humming the score as somebody's talking to him, as he's <clears throat> he's clearly in his right. own head. And someone's trying to, like, snap him out of it to ask him if they can have a role in his movie. Because that's all anybody asks. (laughs) (laughs) So, the... Both the impetus behind the film and the film itself are concerned with a director who has director's block. But he seemingly is also um, the auteur. He's, He's the creator of the film entirely. Um... And within the movie, he's brought on this uh, film critic to kind of collaborate with and vet his ideas. Uh, and it's nothing is told to you outright. Everything is kind of implied in this movie because um, of the way that the dialogue stacks on top of each other and everyone kind of comes and goes past his field of vision. Uh, but you figure out that this film critic that he's brought onto the production is supposed to help him clarify his ideas and really get something down on paper. And he has nothing. There's, 
there's nothing solid that he can tell anybody. And that's his modus operandi for the whole film is he doesn't make a single goddamn decision. Yeah. <laughs> I love the critic though. Cause I'm, I'm curious how many movies had broken the fourth wall before this movie, or if that was at all common in the early sixties, because the critic is basically talking about the movie itself where he's like, what do you mean there's no story? It's just a collection of scenes. No one wants to watch that. And so right. he's he's talking about the movie that we're watching uh, and basically making fun of itself in a way. I um, thought that was really clever. And yeah, the, the whole time, everyone wants, everyone wants truth from the director. Is everyone is clamoring, desperate for truth. Or for a role. That's us either. Mm -hmm. Give me spiritual fulfillment or give me a job. Is one or the other, basically. And so this movie, right. it's hard to talk about this movie because there really isn't a plot. Basically, the plot of this movie is dealing with this quest for fulfillment that, that an audience has. And this, this director not believing himself capable of actually answering their questions. It's almost the opposite of Max in some ways where this guy doesn't believe he'll ever find the answer. And so he's constantly running from everyone asking him because it's mm -hmm. almost like he made his first movie by accident. And so then, you know, you, you make a, a masterpiece and then people expect a second one. And it's like, well, I don't even know how I made the first one. Right. And that's from the jump on this movie. Um, you know, we see him surrounded by people. But before that, even, he's in this um, tunnel in his car, apparently going to the spa where uh, most of the action takes place. And this fog or smog starts coming in through the vents of his car. And he tries to escape his own car in this total pileup where no, no vehicles are moving. And you get all of these looks around the other cars. And it reminded me of the, um, the REM video for everybody hurts where you see all these different vignettes of people in their cars having their own lives. <laughs> um, but you just get everyone kind of staring back at him. Um, and there's this great shot of a bus full of people that are just sweltering and they have their arms hanging out of the, the bus yeah. windows. And it's this kind of introduction to the surreal nature of what we're going to be dealing with. Um, and this is quickly followed by one of the most like striking images in the film and one of the most famous, which is uh, as Guido like tries to escape from his car, he flies through the, the tunnel, like he coasts out of the tunnel. And at first you're like, what the hell is going on? And then the next thing you see is his pant leg with a string tied around it floating up above the beach. And his producer is down on the ground, tugging on the rope and pulling him back down to earth. Um, and I don't know how much of the movie is supposed to be real after that point, <laughs> after what we're viewing. I have no idea. I have so many thoughts, though, about this intro sequence. One, he nails what it feels like to be in Los Angeles traffic. I, I'm, fr I'm from Southern California. <laughs> I don't I live up north now, but. That just reminded me of that existential feeling of just like existential dread. I'm going to be stuck on the 405 forever 
It's 115 degrees. And this is the this is the rest of my life. And I'm just stuck here with these people mm -hmm. around me. And you look around and you see the same faces in the cars around you. And everyone has their own life. But and I as a, <laughs> I just similarly to how he floated away. It really made me laugh because I remember as a kid daydreaming about the day that we'll have helicopter cars where once you get into traffic, right. you can just push like the inspector gadget button that pops a little rotor out of the roof of the car and suddenly you're just flying away from all of it. And so this this fantasy that he has directly correlated to something that I had thought about. But the floating nice. thing, one unbelievable shot. Two, I'm very curious how the hell they did that. Because that camera is so yes. high above the beach that it it kind of, I, I, it, I feel like there has to be some kind of map painting involved, especially for the falling shot. That, mm -hmm. unbelievable. I don't know how they did that. No, I've always wondered that because um, I, I watched this film for the first time last year, but I've seen that shot in film textbooks and in uh, video essays and, you know, uh, greatest films of all time, um, things like that. I've seen that shot repeatedly and it doesn't prepare you for how much movement there is in the shot and how real it looks. How it looks like he is floating up above this beach and the fall, the way that they capture it, it's not like this perfectly composed thing. It's kind of off to the side a little bit and he's falling at an angle and it's... It makes it look all the more realistic. It's, yeah, it's so cool. I thought for sure it would look more like a Charlie Chaplin film where it, something yes. would look flat or something would look stagey or something, you know. But no, it and as you said, the way that he falls almost curving towards the edge of the frame, it it adds an, imperf an imperfection, which creates reality i wasn't i honestly wasn't sure if we were going to see a splash in the ocean and maybe they dropped a mannequin or so i i i i i had no idea how that shot was going to end it blew it was really really unbelievable and that's the coolest thing about knowing stuff from this time period it's that directors and cinematographers and crews had to be able to perform magic to create movie magic they, they had to be auteurs and geniuses to be able to do these things that we now take for granted so easily with today's computers and everything else. Right. It's um, a little bit of a derail, but it's one of the things that I find fascinating about like um, Hong Kong action films. Uh, if you look at the action films through the 80s, uh, especially, and you see the focus on uh, impact rather than kind of the big result. You actually see things, people hit each other and you see people hit their surroundings. When they fall down, they look like they're actually getting hurt. And, you know, where in American film, someone falls out of the frame and they fall onto a mat and you never actually see them impact the ground or the railing below them or whatever. And kind of the Jackie Chan style of you see someone fall over a railing, they hit something on the way down and bounce to the side and there's something very visceral and real about that and i think that um it's something that's prized in other sorts of, of filmmaking that isn't really prized in you know the digital age that we live in now and fellini at this time 
when he made this movie was coming from a very realistic background. He was one of the, the uh, godfathers of neorealism and somebody who was praised for how realistic his films felt. And so this had to be like a sucker punch to people when they first saw it, this opening, especially this little sequence um, coming from somebody who did incredibly grounded, realistic films to come to this thing where your main character is flying out of a tunnel to begin with. I love that. I love that he came out of the gates swinging like that. I don't know. Um, maybe you could tell me. I'm guessing he never made a love story before this, based on the fact that characters keep asking the director, "Why don't you make a love story?" Um, <laughs> but I don't. I don't know his movies at all. This is the first one I've seen of his, so I don't know. It's interesting that I watched this being his first movie that I've seen because this is basically Fellini looking at himself in the mirror. Yet I don't have any other. Mm-hmm. I don't have any other point of reference, so I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at except for just the mirror. Well, and the only other one that I've seen is La Dolce Vita. Um, And so I don't have like a a great grounding, uh, but apparently during this time of his life, um, Fellini was experimenting with LSD. He was going to therapy. He was really like, kind of delving inside of oh, himself but when, rather than dealing with when we when we get, when we get <laughs> exactly. to that ending i'll tell you i can tell that man has done some psychedelics <laughs> I, if you just, I uh, mean, we could just talked, talk about it now but yeah it's very for me someone who's done psychedelics i love that the ending of this movie is basically that well um i'll start it by going th- this movie is about the quest for truth and it's very circular as it's presented in this because the actor looks to the producer, the producer looks to the director, the director's looking to the cardinal of the church. Everyone's looking for (laughs) truth and for meaning and what are we doing here? And the cardinal, real jerk this guy, I don't like him at all. It's just like, (laughs) who said you... Who said you have the right to be happy? Like, that's not your task. That's not why right. we're here. It's like, oh, dude, you've missed the point. Because I think the only point that we're here, and similar, I was so stoked when Fellini came to this, is just love and beauty and, and happiness and finding that in mm-hmm. friendship and in each other. And so Fellini, I thought it was such a beautiful moment at the end when there's a, basically a conga line of people and he and his wife jump right in the middle of it. And he acknowledges, hey, I'm I'm just in this with you. I, I'm I'm a part of this too. Right. I'm not above everyone else. I do not have this great answer. Which is why I, I I'm excited to compare these two movies because I think they share so much in common pie and eight and a half. But I love Fellini. His resolution at the end of this is that just the only thing that really seems to have any impact is beauty and happiness and love and not and and just kind of the opposite of the director like the idea of just presenting the truth of life or whatever the cardinal was saying um and that definitely has very lsd kind of vibes to me right that's uh fellini talks about 
the the impulse behind this movie is very much like we see in the film itself, where producers and actors, uh, everyone was ready for him to make his next film, and he only had a name for the main character. He couldn't decide what he did for a living. He couldn't decide what sort of scenario he would find himself in. And uh, they're basically, he's in his offices and one of the, the crew members comes up and requests like, hey, let's do a toast to celebrate starting this movie. Uh, and Fellini says he felt overwhelmed by shame. I was in a no exit situation. I was a director who wanted to make a film that he no longer remembers. And it hit him at that point. Why doesn't he make the film about that, about his own search for what can he say at this point that he's done several movies. He's done several, uh, he's, he's had his turn at bat basically. And people are listening to him, but what do you say once you have the microphone, once you have a chance to actually say something to people, what is it that you, you tell them is important? I love it. I, that, it's yeah. awesome. It's great. And I love that Fellini felt that shame and, you know, actually cared <laughs> and didn't just want to just put out some bullshit just because it's what was expected of him. But I, I think it's so human. And I think to make it's very courageous of him, I think, to make this movie because it's mm -hmm. basically it's, it's a self critique. But you could also say it's very self-indulgent. But it's critical of himself, but at the same time, to make a movie about yourself making a movie, it's really, really self-indulgent. And it is. It it teeters between being too self-indulgent, too um, preposterous and full of itself. And at the same time, he's constantly tearing himself down. Like, as you see the director character, he's not someone to aspire to. He's someone who doesn't know where he is in his life. Um, he's got this harem of women around him. <laughs> he has a cool harem of women. And he's not satisfying. There are... Yes, he's not satisfying any of them, though. Yeah, like, that har he's not that harem with any thing of them, was... and they're not happy with him. That whole sequence was, this movie is very dreamlike. But that took it to another level where that felt like a play within the movie, within the dream or something mm -hmm. like that. I loved it. I loved the harem's rebellion and the idea of there, like there's a bunch of 27 to 45 year olds up on the second floor and stuff. Um, oh, that, that was so much fun. Also, did at one point, did he moisturize his hands by using a woman's breath? Yes, he breathe on his hands. That, when I saw that, I've never seen anything like that in a movie ever. To have somebody breathe on your hands and then rub it in as your moisturizer—it's he literally has the world handed to yeah, him. Well, everything that he would and that's need. That's why I think Fellini's taking the piss out of himself. Because he has a harem of 26-year-old women, and he will not talk to them if they're 27. And it's it's definitely, he's self-critical, or he's at least self-acknowledging of, of who he mm -hmm. is, or what his perception is, at least. 
I really, really, really enjoyed that because this movie could definitely have been a director's vanity project. But instead, mm-hmm. this this movie feels very honest. You can feel the you can feel the that, fear that Fellini has of the pressure, and it feels claustrophobic. Everybody walking up to him, asking him about the movie. What's the movie? What's the movie? What's the truth? What's my part? And just the just similar to that feeling of him being in traffic, and then towards the end of the movie, when the traffic starts to again kind of start to appear and form itself around him, this movie gets very claustrophobic at times. And it's, he's unable to make any choices. He deflects every question that comes at him. He answers questions with other questions. He can't settle on anything. And the way that it's shot, the especially for 1963, um, I don't think that you think of films from this era as being this lively and having this playful of a camera. Uh, but the way that it constantly is kind of dancing around, um, Fellini, apparently, uh, the the style at the time was that you would record all of the dialogue later. You wouldn't actually do any of it live from the set. And so he would have music playing a lot of times on set as people were doing their, uh, as they were doing their scenes. And it kind of lends this rhythmic dance-like quality to a lot of the sequences. But you see people coming in from every angle towards the director it's really impressive, like this kind of the overwhelming claustrophobia that he can uh, present through this lens. Um, and the only thing that ever stops Guido is when a beautiful woman walks past. You will see him like eyeing a woman. People are asking him questions from every direction, and he gets distracted by a woman walking up the stairs yeah. <laughs> and will totally space out of the moment, and it starts one of his little dream sequences. <laughs> Um, I lost what I was going to say. <clears throat> it's gone. Um, well, he's questioned by journalists. He dodges all the questions. Um, everyone around him is trying to do their job. They're trying to, like, uh, fulfill their, their, their own purpose while he is on this quest to, like, find the truth. Um, they just want to build the set or get into their role or figure out what they're supposed to be doing. And he has nothing for any of them. What are um, they building? It's it's one of the most impressive pieces of scaffolding I've ever seen. <laughs> I wanted to spend more time mm-hmm. at that set just because I wanted to marvel at that scaffolding. What, what were, what were yes. they shooting there? Did I hear a launch pad it, at one point? Yes, it's supposed to be a um and they show the the map paintings uh when they first arrive to that site that they're going to be superimposed with these map paintings in front of a of a spacecraft ah uh, and this is the launch pad for the gotcha. spacecraft okay um and he doesn't really feature them which i can't imagine the amount of work that actually went into building this huge i thought they were map paintings at one and point the, yeah it's it's right up to the point where you see people walk all the way to the top of it. You know, you, you see the little train of people go all the way to the top. I thought that was just movie Uh, magic that he was tricking us. And then, and then a couple minutes into their usage, he then kind of reveals that, no, this shit's real. (laughs) Right. I love the fact that this huge construction project has started 
because of some vague thing that Guido has said at some point. And he doesn't know how it fits together. He doesn't know why there's a spaceship in his movie that he's making. No, it's people. It's beautiful. People are just so eager to do anything that just if, if he even suggests an idea, he's <laughs> like the producer that scene where they're in the theater watching the audition tapes and the producer is just trying to get him to have any kind of response whatsoever. He'll take even a no and Guido <laughs> just kind of shrugs and just kind of. <laughs> and, then, and then leaves it's just this man is so frozen it, it, it's unbelievable he can't he can't do anything mm-hmm. and he keeps trying to have these real moments with people where uh he's trying to have some sort of real interaction he thinks that maybe when he talks to uh i believe he talks to the cardinal and then the bishop of the church um, and he tries to get something out of them that is is going to like set him on the right path. That's going to clear his head and get him headed in the right direction. Uh, and he he admits to the cardinal uh, that he's not happy. And that's when the cardinal says, "Why should you be happy? It's not your task to be happy." Um, and instead of getting like an actual moment of connection, the cardinal just starts repeating um, that uh, you're either in the city of God or the city of the devil. He who does not belong in the city of God belongs in the city of the devil. And he just says this over and over. Yeah. Like, and that's his whole audience with the Cardinal. Yeah. That's all of his advice that he's given. Well, and yeah, maybe he fears letting people down like that Cardinal let him down, you know? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, um, he's looking for salvation. And I love um, that quote. He says, um, he can't choose a path because he fears that he might choose the wrong one or he might miss the correct path. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is universally relatable. It's like, what if I had pursued that relationship more? What if I had asked this person out? What if I had taken that job? What if I went to that? And it, it's a butterfly effect where you start imagining the million different lives you could have had had you made one different choice. And it, it's completely overwhelming to think about right and it's i think um an incredibly realistic view of a midlife crisis like we don't normally i think in america you get the midlife crisis and it's a man divorces his wife gets a uh, a hot young wife and buys a sports car and there's something about like a return to teenagehood that is normally seen through those kinds of stories. But this is somebody who realizes like he's been standing on shifting sand this entire time and he feels so weak and he's like so small that he can't direct anyone to do anything. And that's his whole purpose. That's his whole job is to direct people to tell a story that somehow shares the truth of, of what he is viewing at that point in time. And he can't find any truth. He can't find any honest moments. He wants to say something honest, but he doesn't have the courage to say anything at all. Well, and he's looking. He's looking through mm-hmm. mineral baths, through saunas, through a bunch of 20-something-year-old women, through cardinals. You know, he's seeking it just like everyone else is. And mm-hmm. I think that's 
the predominant theme of this movie, I think, is just Fellini's fear that what if he doesn't know anything? Or what, what, if, what if he's not special? What if he doesn't have the insight that people need of him? And it's also definitely, I think, a critique of the audience, of what we demand from our artists, and what we can't fulfill ourselves, we demand that somebody else fulfill for us. Mm-hmm. And that the same way that he's looking to the Cardinal, everyone else is looking to him, and it's the, the fascinating way that it plays out is he never has that realization that just by being who he is, um, he has some importance and he has something to say. He kind of just retreats into all of these, these uh, fantasies and memories of his childhood. Um, and the dunce yeah, cap, the, yes, I was going to say the, the one that gets me is um, a memory of his childhood where uh, him and some other boys from this Catholic school that he goes to visit this prostitute on the beach. And she is portrayed as this wild woman who lives on the edge of civilization. Um, and the, the angles that she's shot from, she's very earthy and she's very... Um, full breasted and like just brought to kind of her hips are constantly grinding and she's dancing and her hair is wild and she's the exact opposite of the world that he's living in. Uh, and she represents something else and he's immediately punished for being around her. And he's told that she's the devil and it makes his mother cry. His mother comes to the school and weeps and says, what have you done to us? And it's like, it's this great moment of him trying to bite the apple and getting his hand slapped and, you know, just shame dumped on him rather than any knowledge. Yeah. Alan, I had only seen a dunce cap before, like in TV or comics or cartoons or whatever. I did. Right. I, what a horrible thing to do to a child. Cause it is complete yes. humiliation and shame of this poor kid. Um, Oh, I felt I felt terrible watching that. And he was out there with a bunch of other boys, and he's the one who gets caught and busted. But yeah. that's the thing. Um, one part of this movie I want to mention—I forgot that um, you mentioned earlier—was the um, the way dialogue was recorded at this time. I noticed in this movie, mm-hmm. especially. Most of the time, it's it's a pretty close match, the ADR, to what's on screen. But then sometimes some characters mm-hmm. will have completely mismatched dialogue where the characters will be speaking when they're not even moving their mouths. And I think it, I think it's right. a choice of, again, contributing to this, this dreamlike state. Everything is surreal. Everything has a kind of magical realism feel to it. And whether... You know, there's there's another instance where a character kind of floats away and people kind of dance in and off screen or the way that the people approached and then left the the fountains in this weird choreographed mm-hmm. way. Everything feels so dreamlike that it, it yeah, I don't know what's real and what's not. I don't know if any of it even needs to be real after that after that starting scene, you know, right. 
And that's, uh, especially after watching it a couple times, um, you start to see these visual echoes, I guess, or precursors to the the grand ending sort of conga line um, circus celebration that happens. Uh, like you said, you see the people, the way that they come and go from these different settings is, is very choreographed. And sometimes there's a band actually playing um, and the music seems to stick in his head and he'll start repeating the music and then the music repeats in the background. And it just becomes this uh, all encompassing where you're never sure, uh, especially the sequence that starts the, the harem at his childhood home, (laughs) you know, and it is, it's like one of those dreams where you go, Oh, we were at my childhood home, but it wasn't, it was my friend Dave's house, but it wasn't really that either. It was also this, the way that he uses all these symbols on top of each other, um, is, uh, sort of comes to a head for me in the point where he's eating breakfast with his wife and his mistress walks into this outdoor dining area and the wife and the mistress like make these faces at each other, faces <laughs> at each other across the way. And he's denying knowing this woman. Uh, and then suddenly he kicks back with this whole different demeanor uh, on his whole person. Like he goes from kind of hiding and hiding behind the sunglasses to kicked back, relaxed and watches the two women interact. And that leads into his fantasy of the harem where all of the women take care of him. And he's pampered and babied just like when he was a small child. And literally they're, they cradle him in a sheet between all these women and carry him around and, you know, putting powders on him and everything. It's so fantastic that you realize that like none of this is actually happening and it's insane. The idea of this household that he kind of constructed in his own head. Um, but it's got a truth to him and it's got a beauty to him of he wishes he could live his life like that and get away with it. Oh yeah. And I think so many of us at so many points in our time, we, we want a partner to fix us, whether man or woman, Mm -hmm. we want, we want that other person to just kind of, take the reins of our life and knock us back in line and get everything so we can just kind of sit there swathed in a in a sheet and not do anything and, and so right. I, again i think fellini is doing a great job of being self-critical there and of a- acknowledging that yeah he's what he's searching for in the company of young women and everything else is infantile basically you know Right. And that's this, this woman that he's been seeing throughout um, his fantasies and he kind of catches from the corner of his eye, uh, his dream girl shows up to the, the screen test, the casting session that they're having um, in the flesh. And he immediately leaves the screen test. He, he leaves the whole cast and crew behind and leaves with this woman. Um, and he actually tells her kind of the most clear version of his idea for the film so far, which is just what you said of uh, this man is searching for meaning in his life and a woman brings him salvation and he wants her to be this woman. Um, And the real version of this woman, once she actually speaks, doesn't bring him salvation. She tells him he doesn't know how to love 
and he doesn't really know what he wants in his life. And it kind of crushes him. And he immediately says, oh, well, the, the shoot's off. We're not doing the movie. And as soon as he says that, the rest of the cast and crew show up and say, hey, uh, we've got this press conference ready for our, our movie. <laughs> as soon as he makes a decision not to make the movie, they push him and he has to make it at this point. He has to do something. Yeah, there's cameras, there's scaffolding, there's actors. Everyone is waiting and relying on him to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the point? There was one point, I, I can't think of the moment, an actor changes, like he he kisses a woman, and then when it when she pulls back, it's a different oh, yes, it's a different person, which I I don't recall the specifics, but again, I think it's just showing his his fantasizing of seeing in people what he wants or you know or what he's looking for. Yeah. He he doesn't even see who's actually there. He's just looking for what he wants and what he wants them to become. Yeah, it's one of the early um, dream sequences he's in. And most of that sequence is him talking to his father as he actually lowers him down into a grave. Uh, he kind of follows him around this little desolate area for a little bit. And then um, his father's telling him the wishes he had for him as he was a child. And they're holding hands and the father is like stepping down into this hole in the ground. And uh, his mother comes up kind of out of nowhere and starts to comfort him, and then she kisses him, and then she wraps her arms around his head and goes in for a big, deep kiss. And it looks like within one shot, it turns from his mother into this young woman. Yeah. And it's kind of one of those, like, he he wants to be mommied. He, <laughs> he, he, he wants a lover who can also be his mother. Yeah. And, yeah, it's... It's great. Uh, it's really it's a, it's a really funny way to to make fun of yourself yeah. for that. So, uh, towards the end, they go to this press conference, which is at the site of this huge set that they're building. Uh, and once again, he's surrounded on all sides and the, the crew is basically yelling at him. The, all these reporters are taking his picture and there's flash bulbs going off and they're just asking him, not only what are you doing, but what is the meaning of this? Like justify yourself, justify this movie, justify your existence. Uh, and you know, like you were saying, they're all hungry for him to have the answer for them, but he doesn't have any. And then I didn't know who the character was. who shows up and says, um, the answer is in your right pocket. I put the answer in your pocket right before he crawls underneath the table. Oh yeah. <laughs> I didn't recognize this it is where we this is where we producers. start to get real really really surreal um with this yes. part yeah I I don't know who that character was uh but just that was that was like a deus ex machina just showing up and like oh there's a thing in your pocket right <clears throat> so and yeah so then he he climbs that? under the table and I love that the the, uh, the <laughs> table is made from like heavy steel pipe fitting and stuff like underneath mm -hmm. the table it does not it looks nothing like a table that i've seen it looks like he's escaping through a tunnel or something you know right and he gets to the the edge of the table and reaches into his right pocket and pulls out a gun which 
to me, when I first saw it, was shocking because this movie has kind of had this light comedic tone throughout the whole thing. And then where the hell is a gun coming from? And what's he going to do with it? Yeah, this didn't feel like it was going to be a movie where it was going to be like a character suicide to end it. So I was, I was, I was very right. shocked when that moment happened, and I was, I was hoping that the credits credits would not roll there because that I didn't want to, I didn't want right. to see a death of the artist movie. You know, after all this build up, right. that's not. I didn't want Fellini to leave me with that of just like, well, it's really, really hard to find truth so hard that it's actually impossible so you're better off just not trying at all <laughs> so instead we get uh everyone i mean seemingly everyone who's been in the film shows up again after this gunshot goes off after he kind of dusts himself off and starts walking away um which is once again this like insane surreal shift that happens um so I'm not sure if the the gun and the gunshot and his seeming suicide is like, is it his actual death? Is it the death of his ego? And he's killed the part of himself that has been thinking it's so important and, and, and searching for this truth when he actually finds it. I think this is a good time to bring Pi back in. Because we're, bas- we're okay. essentially talking about two characters who in my theory, in their fantasies, destroy a part of their brain. And it leads mm-hmm. both of them to happiness. Yes. And that, I can totally uh, see that. So I definitely, I think, again, I don't know what's real at all, if any of this movie is even supposed to be real per se, but um, I think it's just another fantasy. The the point from like crawling under the table on even that whole press conference seems so over the top with everybody converging on him and shouting and screaming at the same mm-hmm. time that it, it almost feels like a representation of of um like agoraphobia or claustrophobia of that's what it feels like when the mm-hmm. walls or the people start surrounding you um so i don't quite know I, I that was this was one question or one point that I wanted to talk to you about is how do we get from this point to the very end of this movie? How where does the clarity come in for this character for Guido? And and that's uh, early on the um, film critic tells him that he needs to clarify his metaphor that his meaning is subsumed by the spectacle of what he's put on and that he doesn't know actually what the meaning is anymore. He's just follow um, episode to episode and there's no clear through line of, uh, you know, the, the impetus behind the story. And I think that in this last sequence, as everyone who's been a part of this journey comes back out, they're all dressed in white. Now everyone is the best version of themselves. And you get the the cardinal shows up again. Uh, the prostitute that he danced with on the beach shows up again. And everyone is getting along. And they're all led by the avatar of his younger self. Uh, once again, decked out fully in white in this his childhood uh, school uniform. But it has all been bleached white. Uh, so... 
I think the metaphor becomes clearer even as like the reality of what actually happened uh, gets murkier. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Cause this movie, I wasn't expecting to have much clarity and, but the end actually does as the editor, as the critic says, the movie does actually leave you with answers. And yes. I, I, I think this is where and... I really, I, I enjoyed, I really, really liked this movie. But I think this point where the the critics said that and then we kind of get this LSD, the world is love, every, you know, let's pursue happiness, pursue kindness. Right. I really liked that end message because in the end, that, that, I feel like that's what art, art is expression, but art is also to create understanding and to create compassion and to create, you know, images or sounds of the human struggle and what we all struggle with and, and how hard this is and to find our place and to find our meaning and so art brings us together because it's it's something that's just expression it has it has no intrinsic value except for the fact that it allows us to maybe think in a new way or to think outside the box or to realize that we're not alone with certain thoughts or feelings that these are universal. This is a human struggle. Um, so I really, I really like how Fellini tied this one together. And that's, uh, it's funny because that brings me to one of my favorite um, ideas from Roger Ebert. Uh, and actually the, the name of my former podcast was The Empathy Machine. Ebert talks about the fact that movies are just a machine for empathy understanding someone else in the world and uh, for connecting through, you know, our shared humanity. Uh, and that's really what the end of this movie comes to. Like, it's been all these specifics about Fellini's life and filtered through his character, but you see the universality of it in the end. That And the, the characters even state, you're nothing without all of us, basically. Yeah. Like, you know, we need, we all need this connection. Uh, and so it's funny because this movie that could be seen as outdated or too pretentious or all of these different things, I think really has an emotional weight that kind of hit me at the end of it, that, that it still carries that same punch after, you know, 50 odd years at this point. I... Yeah, it's heartwarming. And <clears throat> one, a theory that I, I like that that I kind of subscribe to is that um, life exists. You know, plant, animal, human life exists for the cosmos or for God or for whatever creator. It's it's trying to figure itself out, and so it's trying to figure itself out by creating life and then have and letting everything mm -hmm. unfold infinitely to try to you know i feel like in some ways like that entity is also searching for its own truth and so these things are very circular in this movie in both these movies of that quest for for universal truth or for god or for divinity and 
I think both these movies are telling you that it's futile to to chase it and to just you know instead of chasing it look at a tree around you realize the beauty around you and just try to be happy it's really what both of these right. movies is my takeaway from both of them so i i loved i loved that they they linked up like that because i didn't think they were going to when we first decided to watch both of these <laughs> it was just kind of random they both had numbers and they were both black and white but here we are i think i think they're a wonderful pairing yeah it's you don't really get uh, i don't feel like all that many movies where somebody explicitly questions god on the nature of uh you know the importance of of life and of consciousness itself and in both of these movies you get <laughs> two times the same we did thing. it two times yes <laughs> so that's pretty cool you know and my god what a what a big question for us to be confronting with our first episode <laughs> Oh, no oh, just casually talk about the meaning of life for two hours. <laughs> 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 well, um, that about does it for me. I, I think I'm pretty taxed. I think I'm I'm out of ideas. Mm -hmm.